0: Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Eating Crow podcast. I'm joined by Tony Albrecht. Tony, how are you today? So far, so good, Peter. Thank you. You're in uh, sunny, warm Toronto or north of Toronto, I should say, right now, right?
1: North of Toronto. My run this morning, it was was an even zero Fahrenheit.
0: Wow. How do your lungs put up with that?
1: I wear a balaclava while I'm doing it. Got and I, I think that probably helps.
0: It makes a yeah. bit of a difference. That's a cold my body doesn't like I don't like those runs anymore. Those are too cold for me. But good for you. <laughs> That's awesome. So Tony, I, I reached out to you when I saw, you know, some of your material on LinkedIn, which is how I find a lot of my guests because there's just some amazingly interesting people out there. I've met some unique people. Yours is pretty unique. So you've got this thing called the Rowdy Creative, which is how you're expressing kind of all your I'll say career and personal heartfelt values are getting things out there, but let's start off with this tipping point in your life and we'll drill back into it, but I want to start right off with this, where you reached this low point. There's a lot of people that reach low points. There's not many people reach low points where you did. (laughs) So take us back to this moment where you said, I've got to make some changes, got to eat some crow, and then let's kind of peel that, uh, peel that onion.
1: Sure. Yeah. That moment, uh, which I've written about uh, in public, including on LinkedIn, would be mm-hmm. the the time I regained consciousness in a Guamanian jail cell. It was uh, Thanksgiving night, 2009. I was a new lawyer uh, coming out of law school at just about the worst time with the Great Recession. Mm-hmm. Only job offer I had out of law school that summer was to join... A solo practitioner on the island of Guam. It's the same designation as Puerto Rico, 11,000 miles away from right. my hometown of St. Louis, Missouri. So took the job went but by then I was pretty much a high functioning alcoholic. You know, by the time I finished law school at 26, 27 years old and yeah, ended up, you know, driving when I shouldn't. I described that that experiences, I thank God I I didn't hurt anyone throughout my drinking career in the times I was behaving recklessly, but I failed a sobriety test spectacularly and, and landed myself in a a concrete cell where I still remember, you know, kind of wearing basketball shorts and flip-flops and opening my eyes and just having those fluorescents glaring down at me. And that is what they call rock bottom.
0: Right you're there there's no family you're working in in a law firm in in Guam when you had that that moment and you realized this is not where i want to be what's the first step you take
1: that's a good question i will say i went to my first meeting of aa a week later that was definitely a step but before that i sent a couple really raw emails i remember sending one to my parents in st louis just laying it all out there, laying out what had happened, laying out what, what I had come to. And, and just this feeling of, it was a feeling of helplessness and in a way, surrender. The things I've been doing up until this point, they clearly have not worked. I think that was the point where I started to learn some things about humility. Right. Or up until that point, humility had not been a strong suit, I would say. I was not at all a humble person. Okay. And those were say how I came to learn about the value and importance of humility was a lesson that I insisted on learning the hard way. But I do think that that was really the first step of like, of like saying, okay, I can't scheme my way out of this. I can't maneuver. I can't. People have been telling me I'm super smart my whole life and I'm so talented I'm not figuring this thing out, and it's not going the right direction. And I was unhealthy, and I was lonely, and I might have just blown up the career that I had spent pretty much my entire life working toward literally two months after it began. So yeah, I think that first step was just recognizing what I had been doing was not working.
0: So this was like, let's say this is the, uh, this is the opening scene of uh, Yellowstone spinoff, 1883. I'm not going to give any spoilers, but they start with somewhere near the end of the movie, give you a shocking scene and then they kind of, they, they, they go back to the beginning. So let's talk about the fact that you were kind of a high functioning alcoholic through law school. When did you start drinking?
1: So I describe myself as somebody that the D.A.R.E. program worked on. That thing in elementary school mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. for us, it was Lieutenant Nestor. He came in and taught us all the ways to say no to drugs and all that. I had maybe two or three experiences with alcohol in high school. I actually ended up going into the Catholic seminary for a very short moment. It was my stint lasted about five weeks. So I was behaving myself through pretty much my first year of college. And things started to pick up for the back end of college. And then it was really in law school where my drinking started to cause serious problems.
0: And was it social? Was it hanging out with other students or were you trying to do it just to get through the nights?
1: The way I've come to understand it, and I, I don't consider myself at all an expert on addiction or right. or alcoholism, but I see there are kind of two types of alcoholics. There's the kind who maybe it's the more stereotypical where it's like you're hiding drinks and you're you're just trying to make it through the day. That was not me. I think of my boozing as an attempt to connect, that it was about... Overcoming some insecurities and masking over with bravado and with being overly social and wanting to be the life of the party. So that was definitely how I operated.
0: Do you, uh, do you have brothers or sisters? I have two
1: younger sisters.
0: Or the three of us
1: are, uh, I think we're only, only about three, a little more than three
0: years apart. When you sent the email to your parents when you were in, had just gotten out of prison in Guam. Were they aware of this? How did they react? God bless
1: them. They weren't surprised. Okay. My mother first sat me down in 2005. So a few years earlier, the first time I landed in the EAR due to an accident related to being blackout drunk and told me I had a problem and I was just out of undergrad. I had just graduated with my bachelor's and I did not believe her. My father maybe did. He he thought it was boys will be boys kind of stuff. There was a pattern of behavior and a pattern of say destructiveness, recklessness, uh, self-centeredness that increasingly caused problems. I think for my parents, there was this hope that I would grow up, that maybe maybe getting out of law school, maybe getting the first job, starting the career. Sure. Maybe I'd finally. Move beyond that period of prolonged adolescence that I had been been locked in, but my parents were always they've they've always been very supportive of me, and they were then as well. I mean, it was was nothing but love from them.
0: That's amazing, and 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 by the way, that's the true test of being a parent, right? Mm. Is is loving your kids unconditionally. That's part of the Mm. job, and it's hard sometimes, right? You can love your kids. When I was eighteen or nineteen, I um maybe had, as you described a little bit more I, it, earlier, I, I was maybe a little more confident than I should be at that age. Mm-hmm. And my dad's a quiet guy, uh, which means when he spoke, I usually listened. He just didn't speak very much. And years later, my mom said, yeah, he loved you then, but he didn't really like you a whole lot. I go, why didn't you <laughs> tell me? She goes, he figured he'd work it out. So right. I've got three kids grown. I've got, I'm going to be a grandfather in a few months. So my, my daughter's happily married. I got a son that is, uh, 25 living in in Raleigh, another one that's still in college. So, you know, they're all very different and you're right. You, you, you love them for who they are and you hope you did as good a job as possible when you, when you kick them out of the nest and they go to school. So
1: amen to that. And I've got two little ones now who are three and, and our daughter just turned one, but uh, our little man is, uh, he's hitting that phase that people are referring to as three major. Yeah. Oh, buddy, that attitude!
0: <laughs> you're an informed parent now, right? You've you've seen as bad as it can get with a kid, so you're going to approach this a little differently. Maybe a little more buyer beware. You're going to look for signals, which is really interesting, right? You can see where this can go if you don't kind of get your arms on it. Right. In parenting, what people don't re- realize it starts when they're three. Right? I mean, and two, right? You gotta. That's when that's when the magic happens. When they don't know they're being disciplined, they just follow the rules people forget that. Like, I'm going to let my kid have his own expression. And when your kid's two and three years old, they don't get their own expression. They follow the rules because when they're six and seven, if you haven't done that, you hate each other for the rest of your lives. Like, Literally everything's a screaming match and no one gets along if you haven't established those boundaries.
1: I appreciate that. And yeah. every day is a, is a new education right? with oh, yeah. parenting and that resonates for sure.
0: <laughs> there really is no manual, right? You kind of just... No. Figure it out because every family is different. Their environment's different. Their kids are different. There's just no, there's no blueprint. When women in general, my wife had radar like you could not believe. Like she'd say, I said, like, What's wrong? She was something wrong with Sammy. What do you mean? She goes, Something's off with Sammy. And doggone it, she was right. Like somehow we'd get there. And he'd be like, Yeah. She just had a way of knowing when one of the kids was off. And she just paid really good attention to that. It's hard when you're a working parent. You can get distracted with a lot of other things. And uh, it's just difficult.
1: Yeah. And that's definitely how it ha- works in our house. But to such a degree, I-, I think I'm naturally scatterbrained. And the other day I'm about to take my son out. She mm-hmm. says, you know, you put Layla's coat on him, right? And I'm like, <laughs> oh, did I? Are <laughs> you sitting there with the. <laughs> Tell you what, buddy, let's put a let's put the other coat on you. <laughs>
0: yeah. yeah, thank thank goodness that uh, we both married way above our station. By the way, I appreciate you going back there right and helping us understand kind of how you got to that point in in law school. So you, you get out of prison, you go to your first AA meeting, and then you start to rebuild kind of back to where you need to be. Walk us through kind of how long that took and what were some of the bigger things that that helped you get there.
1: We could spend a while on that one. Oh, sure. And the way I think about it now in retrospect, having built all this narrative around my rather nonlinear path. Up until that point, I had been attempting to follow the the conventional script for success and happiness. I grew up in the suburbs of St. Louis, went to, went to good schools, got pretty good grades, intended to. The question in my house was not, whether you were going to go to college, the question was more, which advanced degree are you going to get? My parents really emphasized education. So I had this idea of what success was going to look like. And it was just a matter of jumping through the hoops and checking off the boxes to get there. And it's in retrospect, it's obvious that that wasn't a great fit for me. It wasn't a healthy way for me to be approaching how to to build myself or my life is I think what ended up happening was I was not very authentic. I was concerned about checking off the boxes and I was concerned about portraying myself in a certain way and being seen in a certain way. And I was, I was very careful about my persona and how people viewed me, I think. And ultimately I think that was what led to my my, my, was this, this sense of living a story that was written for somebody else. And so with that rock bottom moment, you know, the line I like that I ran across somewhere was, you hit rock bottom the moment you stop digging. And once I stopped digging, then the question is, all right, now how do you get out of the hole? And for me, it it ended up being a breaking down, I think, of my whole personality. and. The whole edifice of who I was, not to be overly dramatic about oh, it.
0: Yeah.
1: I'm a big believer in this, the 12 steps and that as a methodology for self-exploration. And in that program, they talk about it works if you work it. And what happens if you work it is a spiritual awakening can happen. And I don't mean that in a, in a religious sense, but mm-hmm. that is what happened. For me it's that by virtue of unpacking my past and unpacking resentments and insecurities and fears and really facing up to those for the first time, maybe ever yeah, after going through my 20s, repressing and hiding and papering over those things lost a lot of their power. Mm-hmm. It, uh, and I was left with a clean slate, like a blank slate, I should say where I didn't have a wife or kids at that time. Thank God. And that would not have gone well had I managed to get myself married out of sure. law <laughs> school. And I found myself on Guam without knowing very many people and a lot of time on my hands. And the overarching question was, how do you get healthy? Get your head on straight. Then the more important question going forward was, who's the man you want to be? How do you want to show up in the world? And so For me, it was a matter of starting to understand what my foundational principles were going to be, you know, my, my values as a man. And I tend to describe how things have unfolded since then in the context of my tattoos. I say, have you seen Memento?
0: Yeah. You know, it's, it's
1: not quite like that, but it's sort of like that where I didn't get my first tattoo until July of 2010. And I was at that point. I was a few months after my last drink, and again, there are things that I need to not forget, and there are things that I need to remember if I'm going to keep my head on straight and keep myself moving in a positive, healthy direction. Yeah. My first tattoo was the date of my last drink. This is an audio format, so you can't. Yeah.
0: It's 5, not going to do much 10. good
1: for the audience, but yeah, yeah May 29, 2010, with a a reminder of a line from the, the big book of AA that it goes, we are granted a daily reprieve from our disease contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. And that's, I've tried to keep that in mind every day since then. That's a very meandering answer to that question.
0: <laughs> no, it's a, uh, it's a very thoughtful answer, right? So I I've done many episodes and and sometimes I feel like the, the discussion just zooms along. Other times I get on with a guest and I feel like I'm getting a really deep, thoughtful discussion. And this is one of those. So that, that, that answer is greatly appreciated. You came back to the States then, right? Shortly after that. I did.
1: I was a year in Guam was enough. I, I basically feel like it was a sort of a journey into the, into the wild okay. to face up to some things I needed to face up to, to, to be broken down and start to rebuild. And, yeah, I came back home to St. Louis and and started with a law firm in downtown St. Louis in the fall of 2010 and, and was kind of back on that again conventional path, but with different understanding of kind of who I was. That was where my journey started to get, I think, maybe more peculiar.
0: <laughs> you stayed in the in the law field through it looks like 2020 or 2021. And during that period of time, is that when you met your wife?
1: I will try to put this as succinctly as I can. So I worked for one firm from 2010 to 2013. And during that time, I was kind of rediscovering myself okay. in a way. And I, was, I had this fantastic job where I just flew around the country taking depositions. It was sort of like George Clooney and up in the air. Ah, uh, yeah. Familiar with that Very uh, much so, yeah. That was kind of my life. But I was like blowing through 50 books a year. And, you know, like reading eight books at a time, and I had plenty of time, plenty of bandwidth. And the things I was reading were moving me in a direction of, okay, I should be doing something else, even then. And I ended up, and I've heard other episodes of your podcast where people describe this kind of moment, but sitting in my office in 2012, and then talking about it later, later in the day, and not knowing what the color of the wall was behind my computer. You know, in this office I'd had for two years. I didn't know what color it was. Wow. I'm out of here. I guess like, it was a good job. It was a good deal. Yeah. Good people.
0: Yeah.
1: But I, I ended up deciding to take a year sabbatical in 2013 to try to explore what would happen if I took some time, took some space, and we could do a whole episode on what happened at, in the summer of 2013. But to make it shorter that one year sabbatical ended up turning into four years where I did not have a full-time job from 2013 to 2017. I traveled, I did a ton of what you might call bucket list stuff. I made my living still as a lawyer, as a contract attorney, both in the niche I had been in Mm -hmm. in those first three years, as well as doing some civil rights and and, uh, homeless advocacy legal work in St. Louis with a great organization there. There was that period. And I met my wife during a 10 day silent meditation retreat in the Indian Himalaya, which I guess. So like that, that bucket list sort of thing where we started talking as we were waiting for our room assignments on the way in and started talking on our way out of the place and haven't stopped talking since. She's a Canadian and we got engaged not too long after. In retrospect, it is so goofy how quick it met, but we were engaged within six months of meeting. It did not feel that fast at the time. We got married in the summer of 2016. And then it was like we were both in our mid-30s. We wanted a family. It was like, all right, so it's it's time to figure out how to try to gracefully transition from this period of vagabonding to and kind of plugging back into the matrix, so to speak. So I got a really, (laughs) a really good opportunity with with a good friend who was had the chance to start an office uh, again in that same niche I had been in. He lured me back to St. Louis in 2017 and so did that then helped him build an office there uh, for four years and got a house. We had a baby and then COVID came, then we had another baby. Then in in 2020, we decided it was my wife was ready to come back to Canada and I was on board with that plan. So we we made that move in last spring in 2021. And that move sort of precipitated a change in in my professional direction, where I was was kind of ready to to go try some different things.
0: It's interesting when you look at your profile. Obviously, this doesn't jump out all this, Mm -hmm. which is why we do these podcasts, right?
1: Yeah, 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 yeah.
0: So when (laughs) let's step back from it. In 2013, you you can't remember the color of the wall in your office. You're like, I'm out. Fast forward to today where you started what's called the Rowdy Creative. I mean, that's a huge pivot. Did you know back then in 2013, that's where you were headed eventually? Or how did you arrive at... First of all, tell us what the Rowdy Creative is and then tell us how you arrived at it. Sure.
1: The Rowdy Creative, uh, we describe as a virtual community for creativity. It's a second iteration of an earlier project that was called AXIS. And that was an acronym standing for Artists Creating, Supporting, and Shipping. My sister, Christy, and I started that in 2016. And the Rowdy is still kind of a side project for me that's developing and coming along, and I'm loving it. My sister and I both were writers, and we both had books that we wanted to write we were both in periods of traveling. She had done something similar after getting her MBA and working with some high-profile nonprofits. And then she took a, a little bit of a break. We basically started this little cohort-based uh, creative support group because we had these ideas for books. They weren't getting written. I don't know if you're familiar with The War of Art, Stephen Pressfield book. Okay. It's a book we I ran across. It. The crux of it is that for people who want to make creative work or be creative, we have a daily battle against something called resistance, that natural force that pushes back on us whenever we try to do anything to improve ourselves or to make something of value. Uh, it's the same thing that tries to keep us on the couch on a morning when we're supposed to run, right? Like yeah, that sort of thing. And he lays out in this book in a way that was so illuminating for me that if we can learn how to win that battle against resistance one day at a time, that's how we can make our work and i use the term work with a capital w which refers to things that will not get done if if you don't do them because you're the only one who's going to do that particular thing so my sister and i started this this support group way back when and it worked like we started making more work more creative Mm -hmm. projects we ran more than two dozen cohorts over the course of five years, wow. between 2016 and 2021. And as we were getting toward, toward the end of 2021, we had had a good run in COVID. You know, like people were looking for stuff to do and, and access was a, a really good way for us to you know, make the most of it. We wanted to start scaling what we had been doing. So we had this really pretty tight-knit core of about 12, 20 people. And so we've, we've got something good. There's a need for this sort of thing, so we we transitioned basically from what we had been doing, which was Zoom and Slack, uh, to a Mighty Networks, which is a virtual community platform that allows for a, a whole lot of different kinds of engagement. And yeah, we we launched as the Rowdy Creative in in January. We've uh we've more than doubled in size since launching. You know, we're recording this at the beginning of March. So in the in the first couple months. And my hope for the thing is that we we manage to grow this to a thousand members wow. from where we're at today, and that it can serve as its own self-contained creative community. It, what I write about on LinkedIn more than anything else is is the importance of creativity. I think in this moment of tremendous uncertainty, And I think creativity is is invaluable as a skill for. For making us more resilient, more adaptable, more flexible, I think more resourceful, and then also the virtual component. I also think is big. COVID is, I describe it as like we were we were doing Zoom way before it was cool. We learned a lot about how to spend time in Zoom rooms in ways that feel really good, which has become more important. And thank goodness there's maybe a light at the end of the COVID tunnel now, but I don't think this is going away. And by this, I mean our reliance on virtual technology and having virtual spaces. I think we're all going to end up in virtual communities. I think it's going to continue to be an increasingly important part of how we as individuals find like-minded people for for fulfilling a a variety of, of our needs.
0: I would 100 percent agree. I think it, it opens doors that were not previously openable, right? I mean you can meet people and interact with like-minded people across the world instantly. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it does allow people who may not a be comfortable or have access to an in-person meeting to, to get into this two-dimensional world and somehow find themselves. I work with a couple of volunteer organizations that help people start companies, and we used to do it on-site. And when we went, you know, like everybody else did in March of 2020, to Zoom. More people started opening up. They engaged in the chats. They were able to raise their hand differently. They were more comfortable in that environment. I think we missed a lot of the, but they were it. It actually it made us more productive, honestly, which was interesting. Now this uh, mission matters group. Tell me about that. That's the other thing you're doing right now. What's mission matters?
1: So mission matters is a nonprofit consulting outfit that uh, was started by a father son duo who uh, have been family friends for a very long time, Chuck, Aranda, and his his son, Josh. And what we do is work with nonprofits and other mission-driven organizations to help them with design and implementation of technology uh, systems and things like strategic planning processes, executive trainings, organizational health kind of things. And I joined them in December of 2021, and this is uh, was a big shift for me to go after after spending 11 years where even during my extended sabbatical, I, I most definitely identified as a lawyer and thought of myself that way. And ultimately, I, I think if I were healthy, when if I were in a healthy state of mind in my early 20s, I'd probably never go to law school. I don't think it was the right decision for me. I don't think it was the right fit. It's not a coincidence that my last student loan payment was made in April of 2021. Yeah, so for me, it was kind of that albatross was taken off my neck. Between that and the move of saying, okay, so I turned 40 this year in September, saying, I right, what's what's the next chapter going to look like? And, and my Josh and I kind of hatched a plan for for me to join him and help this fantastic organization with a with a really wonderful mission, try to to do some interesting things and and to grow, which is actually why I started getting active on LinkedIn. I was definitely one of those people for whom LinkedIn was nothing more than a virtual resume as a place where I stashed that and made job announcements. Never paid attention to it, never had any interest in it. And when we Josh and I were talking over the summer, my role with MMG is director of business development, part of my marching orders were you got to figure out how to do LinkedIn because we're going to become a forward-facing organization where we've been almost entirely referral-based for 10 years. Sure. And so, yeah, I said, all right, I'll learn how to do LinkedIn. And I was hoping I would be effective in doing it. Mm-hmm. I did not have any idea how much of a game changer it was going to be in a, in so short a time in terms of how much I'm loving it and how, how impactful the platform has been on, I would say, like my quality of life, which is really wild to me.
0: I think most people have to get to a point where they realize I'm just going to be on LinkedIn as me. It's hard. There are a lot of people who are their LinkedIn persona is very different than their real persona. And they might be successful for a while, but I think it becomes draining living two different lives. For me, I, I have to live in LinkedIn every day. It's part of my job. It's part of my search firm, part of me as the CEO of SABO, which is a very mission driven company to help people with their stroke victims. You know, once I realized I'm just going to be me, I'm going to post things that I think are important to me and, and to the people that align with my thinking and the ones that don't, that's fine. I'm not going to worry about it. And mm-hmm. I'm not going to worry about writing this with a certain, I just write it. And that's liberating when you can feel like you can just write something you're thinking. And there'll be a couple of people out there that don't align, but that's that's quite all right.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, I think that is the power. And even six months ago, if you would have told me that I would be writing as authentically, <clears throat> or as rawly as I am on that particular platform. Right. I mean, I've had blogs before where I've been fairly open and I've been open about my struggles with alcohol and addiction for a long time. That was a decision I made very early on that I was going to do that. But to be doing it on that one has been very surprising to me. But the level of conversation is really unusual in virtual spaces and on social media, for sure. So I, and I, that's something I appreciate about you since running across you there is, is yeah, I mean, it's pretty clear that you're somebody who just brings it. Yeah. And, and it's not for everybody. That's how it should be. Right. Is if you are trying to be for everybody, right. And you're, you're not being real.
0: I noticed a change even a couple of years ago during COVID that LinkedIn became a platform for people like you who want to share their story. And it became, there were, became people who are much more open to it than I think in the past, right. They embraced it because there's a way you're kind of breaking down all of the barriers, right? This is who I am. This is Tony. And if you don't buy into it, by anybody that's had or known a family member that's dealt with any kind of uh, alcohol or drug addiction or abuse like that, I have both sides of my family, my wife's family and my family. So I can relate to it in, in a lot of different ways and, and know that the fact that you're out there openly talking about it does a couple of things. If it reaches one person every day that goes, oh shit, Tony got this figured out. Maybe there's hope for me. Maybe I can get my life back together. And hopefully people reach out and have you know, a, a 10 minute conversation, whatever it might be. That's why I'm always open to people reach out. I'm, I'll, I'll talk with you. I mean, even if it's not necessarily the right thing for my business, I'll have a conversation with just about anybody and hopefully help them. Cause it, there are a lot of people out there looking to find themselves and LinkedIn's probably the closest place they have where they can just sit down and write what they're thinking.
1: Yeah. That's, that's well put. And it's, yeah, it's an amazing thing. You said that you think it changed. A couple of years ago, I don't have much of a frame of reference, but I have been interested. Was it before?
0: (laughs) I think before, and again, I I don't have any data to suggest that my, my thesis is accurate other than when people ended up being, quote unquote, locked in their homes. By the way, let's just be honest. Most of the people on LinkedIn worked in an office somewhere. So when that all shut down, all these educated, talented, creative mix of people were sitting in front of their computers and there was a lot of downtime right they didn't spend any time in their linkedin account all of a sudden it was their only way to connect with other people outside of their coworkers mm-hmm. and it was literally the way to do that and i think people started to experiment and by the way then the then the shift to this word this great resignation right so people started paying attention to jobs out there and realizing i'm not really thrilled with where i'm at i'm not thrilled with my job i'm not thrilled i'm here with my family realizing this is way more important to me than the work that i find completely mind numbing and unfulfilling. So people started to look inward quite a bit. And then it just took a couple of people like yourself who said, I've had enough, right? This is who I am. I'm going to come out of my shell. I realize I need to make a change. And those bold few people started to drive and inspire other people to be creative. And you're right up until three, four years ago, LinkedIn was kind of an online resume. There were people posting content, but it was mostly all business, right? It was I'm a grinder. I've also loved the fact that people who posted on LinkedIn about the grind and I'm gonna an outwork you, outwork you, who now have a lot of money say it's really not about working anybody. It's about being nice and kind and you know forget it. it's it's hilarious. But when a couple of people said, "Look, this is what I'm struggling with: mental health's an issue for me, addictions an issue for me," I actually had coworkers who didn't have any family in their area, and when they went home to their one bedroom apartment and didn't talk to another human being other than a Zoom call for seven months, you know they were struggling. They were really struggling and a lot of people dipped back into alcohol or dipped back into drugs or overate or stopped exercising. So the stuff that you're posting and other people I talked to started to really resonate with a larger audience and identifying that fine line between being personally vulnerable and tying it back to something that you can carry into your both family life and your work life. That's where I think LinkedIn has made a, good, has made a nice adjustment of recognizing there really is no work life, family life. It's life. And that's where I think people resonate to what you're talking about, Tony. It is life. You can't walk through the doors at work or get on a Zoom call and not remember you have a son with 102 fever in the background or your wife's father passed away. All those things are in your head all the time. When employers recognize that, and you know, there's another guy, Kevin Miller, who I have in my podcast coming up as well. CEO started a company. Same struggle. You know, drugs and alcohol. Very open about it with his employees. His revelation is it's so empowering to know that they can bring anything you know i'm dyslexic and I, I was afraid to talk about that before but how can i you know deal with this so i would tell you what was unique what drew me to your content you weren't doing it for attention there are people that post their stories who are looking for likes they're just looking for affirmation and likes there are people who are posting their stories because they don't need anything they're there to offer something That's a very different situation. I think it's inspiring. I think it's important. I think people need to hear it and particularly the way that you talk about it. Tony's pretty unique.
1: I appreciate that. And I hope you're right that I'm not doing it for the likes. I mean, we're human beings, right? Attention is nice, right? For me, there's been something really interesting about getting active on LinkedIn just really within the last six months where I've dabbled in a few other social media platforms. I've never taken any of them very seriously, but there was that dynamic where when I'm posting something, I am looking for the validation. I'm watching those likes in a way that sure. if it doesn't, then it you, know, you feel it, right? You yeah. know, take it a little bit personally. And it's been really interesting here. And I, I don't know why it is now with this, that I feel differently but I'm just describing it as a dog chasing cars. I'm doing my thing. And if it helps somebody, that's awesome. But I I don't know what that is. And I don't know why it's it's unfolded that way for me. I just get the benefit of being slightly amazed whenever something resonates or when somebody reaches out and they want to talk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'm somebody who's got a default setting of saying yes to too much stuff. <laughs> like And so now that's that's becoming more of a thing, right? Okay, there. Are, well, there's only so much much time into the day.
0: <laughs> well, you know, I'll admit when I started the podcast, and I, I I'm a big believer that your personal LinkedIn brand has nothing to do with your company, right? It it does. It's part of what you do, but your company doesn't own it. You own it. I was working with an organization that didn't want me to do my podcast or to be active in LinkedIn because they thought my brand was building faster than the company brand, and I, that was a eye opener for me. Right? Like you're missing the point. The best companies have employees with strong personal brands right? Mm-hmm. And if you have the career path you're looking for with inside your organization, wonderful if you don't encourage them to go find the right one, right? And be there for them. You're building relationships. I got caught up in the waking up in the morning, to, you know, trying to see if this post or this clip of the podcast did well. And if it didn't did well, I wondered why. And I reached out to some mentors who had a lot of experience in this. And, and I had a breakthrough literally just, it's not very long ago in the past six months where I said, I'm not going to worry at all about the likes of the numbers. What I am going to do is be consistent. And you hear it all the time, but oddly enough, it, it, it has worked, right? I'm, I'm posting something every day of relevance and then I interweaving some stuff from the podcast and other places. And it is incredible how it's introduced me to the right people. And I say that, not people, the right people, right? Who said, I really resonated with that post. I follow what you're saying. And that's a smaller audience than I thought I was originally going after. And it's going to grow a lot slower, but it's much higher quality, deeper relationships, you know, just these kind of conversations, Tony, there will be people that will listen to this podcast and I'm no, I'm no Joe Rogan. Right. But there are people that they'll go, they'll listen to this and they'll go talk to a friend who's struggling with this right now. And if that's all they get out of it, it's enriching everyone's lives. Yeah.
1: I I appreciate that night. That part about speaking directly to people in a way that the right people can find you yeah, is so key to all this, where I've been, I've been amazed at the the quality of conversation and the quality of connection. It's been really unexpected. And like just meeting people like you is, is such a, something I'm very grateful for.
0: Yeah. And I'll tell you that the people I've had on my show, I've stayed connected with for all sorts of reasons, right? We, we network people back and forth. We just catch up with each other to see how we're doing. And so many of their journeys have changed direction right there after the podcast a year and a half later, they're doing something completely different because maybe like you, they said, I wasn't meant to be an attorney, right? I've got mm-hmm. this career. I love to write. I love to have other people. Uh, by the way, the, the resistance, I'm going to read this book, right? The War of Art. I. You're right. The resistance, I'm a big fitness guy, getting off the couch, doing those things. People don't realize there's a natural tension to have you not do that. And once you figure it out and win that battle just every day, I'm just going to win today's battle. We'll worry about tomorrow's battle tomorrow. It's liberating. I'm always thinking what the Title of the podcast episode is when I'm doing these episodes. I highlighted a couple of things in my notes over here to the right. So the one I really liked was "You hit rock bottom the moment you stop digging." Great. for me. That's just a great title, right, Tony? I've I've really enjoyed this, and I'm gonna I'm gonna be a big fan of yours and continue to follow your content and in, in your business and the Rowdy Project. It's awesome. Um, how'd you come up with that name, by the way?
1: Trial and error. I'm a huge fan of the name, and I think that that name is as good as axis is bad. And I came up with both of them and I used the, (laughs) but this one really was, I could, I was actually in this notebook I've got sitting in front of me where I'm just working through it over the course of days and just listing different things. And when I come across something that I kind of like, I spend some time with it. Yeah, I roll it around in my head and no, I don't think so. Keep going. And this was one where that combination of words, really. I was like, Okay, I can yeah. stop working
0: now. The Rowdy Creative has <laughs> all the right connotations of not only creativity, but it has, it has a feeling of forward leaning, right? Like it's, I'm leaning in and we're going to be heard, right? You're going to be heard. So yeah. um, we're going to help you beat the resistance. It's a great title, great name. I appreciate that. Well, Tony, um, good luck uh, this weekend with your, your active bunch of kids and, and that warm Toronto weather. I hope spring hits there pretty quickly. And uh, it's been a pleasure having you on the program.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for the time, Peter. This was fun. Yeah,
0: my pleasure. Thanks for checking out Eating Crow. Like and subscribe so you never miss a video.